Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson. I'm chair of the Providence College Political Science Department and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine or those of my guests. Spring has broken out at Providence College. We're enjoying a very nice sunny day here in Providence and the landscapers are at work outside the building. So you may hear uh, the sound of a lawnmower or maybe a leaf blower uh, during this podcast, but we hope those distractions will be kept to a minimum. Anyway, let's proceed with today's topic. Uh, Today, we are continuing this semester's theme of politics around the world with an examination of the events in one of the leading powers in the Middle East, Turkey. Joining us today is Dr. Gazim Jinjurci, a Middle East expert and native of Turkey. Professor Zinjurci earned her bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Bill Kent in Ankara, Turkey, then came to the United States to pursue studies for a PhD at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. She completed her degree there in 2013. Dr. Jinjurci has been a member of the Providence College Political Science faculty since 2013 and teaches courses on Middle East politics, human rights, cultural politics, and a development of Western Civ Colloquium on comparative revolutions. Her research focuses on the intersection of religious politics, philanthropy, and welfare policy in contemporary Turkey and other predominantly Muslim countries. She has published numerous articles in leading journals, including Middle Eastern Studies and the International Journal of Middle East Studies. Her book manuscript, The Muslim Social, Islamic Charity and Governing Poverty in Turkey, is currently under review at the University of Syracuse Press. Welcome, Gazim, and thanks for agreeing to talk with us today. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. So to start up, Gazim, let's let's get some historical background on contemporary Turkish politics. It seems that tension between secularism and Islam have been a central feature of Turkish politics since the establishment of the Turkish Republic back in 1923 by its founder, Kemal Ataturk. Why was Ataturk so insistent on establishing the new republic in 1923 as a secular republic And what measures did he institute to do that? Well, this is a great question to start our examination of modern Turkish politics, I believe. In order to understand the founding of the Turkish Republic, we need to, of course, first look at how many of the intellectuals perceived the Ottoman Empire at the time. Uh, The Ottoman Empire was a 600-year empire that at its height governed almost three continents. But by the time Europe uh, around 18th century became powerful, the Ottoman Empire was then considered as the sick man of Europe and lagged behind European modernization, uh, technological advancement and cultural uh, issues. So for Mustafa Kemal, as like many of his contemporaries, they saw this problem of Ottoman underdevelopment as a problem that was caused primarily by Islamic beliefs and institutions. 
And there was a degree of truth to that because during the Ottoman Empire, any uh, attempt at reform was often met by protests by the ulama, which is the Islamic religious authorities saying that anything new would be against their Islamic beliefs or principles. Even though this was just a way for the religious ulama to hang on to power, they were still able to gain legitimacy by referring any kind of reform or refuting it with reference to Islam. Now, this perception that Islamic institutions kept the Ottoman Empire behind Europe was what fueled Mustafa Kemal Atatürk's belief in the importance of secularism and his idea that westernization and modernization could not be achieved without secularization. In order to achieve this, he introduced a number of um, interesting and controversial um, reforms during the early Republican period. These include the alphabet reform, where all Arabic and Ottoman types of writing and letters were uh, you know, abandoned and a Latin alphabet was adopted, which meant that half the country or at least half, almost all people who were literate were not able to read or write and they had to start everything from the beginning. And then there were a lot of interventions in the name of uh, modernization that focused on Islamic veiling and how men dressed, there was the hat law, and then there was another series of institutional reforms that sought to diminish the power of religious brotherhoods, schools, and any kind of religious institutions. So, so Gizem, this was truly a cultural revolution then in 1923. I mean, I can imagine this being quite shocking to ordinary Turkish people that suddenly ways that they had addressed and and the kinds of letters that they used in their writing were suddenly uh, forbidden and they had to act in very different ways. Uh, was Did this happen smoothly? Was there a lot of resistance by the Turkish people to this? Did he had to have to employ uh, political repression of any kind to accomplish this or or, or was it something that people uh, began to accept? This is uh, hard to answer because even today, the research we have done during this period has not fully examined the reception of these reforms. Um, they've only focused on what the founding ideology sought to achieve and create. But I like to give my students the example of, let's say, a leader came to you know, the United States or a college campus and said, okay, none of you can wear hoodies or jeans anymore. They're banned. What a shock that must be for your students, uh, for our students. And this was kind of what happened to the Turkish citizens in terms of how they dressed, how they talked, how they wrote, how they went to school and how they lived their public and private lives changed. And this was, to a large extent, was done by political repression, as you mentioned. And the rules were sometimes included a violence by the state. Sometimes they included other kinds of disciplinary mechanisms. 
but most of the cultural revolution was done by state authorities that were trying to themselves believe to reach out to the people by modernizing them. Well, I think you know this connects very well, it seems to me, to contemporary Turkish politics because uh, when uh, the current president of Turkey, uh, Recep Erdogan, uh, first came to power as prime minister in the early 2000s, he was ahead of this party, the Justice and Development Party, which is usually characterized as Islamist. Uh, could you say something about the origins of this party, and is there a way in which Erdogan's rise uh, uh, in, in power along with this Islamist party might be uh, kind of a delayed reaction to the the shock of, of this long-ago cultural revolution in 1923? Well, this is the dominant interpretation of Turkish politics, that uh, the rise of political Islam, especially after 1980s, which was when Turkey adopted market reforms, and the state began to use what is referred to as the Turkish Islamic synthesis in order to create a national solidarity, allowed for all these kept up emotions against the cultural revolution to rise and mobilize in the form of an Islamist movement. And I believe that there is definitely truth to this kind of explanation that attributes the rise of Islamic politics in the post-1980 period to the top-down cultural reforms of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Uh, However, new research on this relationship between secularism and Islamism today in Turkey tries to understand these two forms of politics not as oppositional but as feeding into each other uh, which means that from the beginning the Turkish state actually tried to govern Islamic practices and govern true Islam. Uh, The difference is, instead of saying all forms of secularism are against Islamic politics, we need to look at what kinds of Islam are advocated by these two different groups. I think that's a more fruitful approach, because even today we see that religion is used by both secularists and Islamists, but to different ends. Um, And I think that is sometimes forgotten, but one of the ways in which Erdogan has been successful has not been a total rejection of Atatürk's legacy, but a reinterpretation of Atatürk as an actually uh, kind of a Muslim leader uh, that was misunderstood and mispresented by secularists. So, um, yeah. So, I'm, I'm tempted to make an analogy here that, that may be inappropriate. It sounds as though the tension here isn't so much between some kind of pure secularism and Islam, but uh, two different views of Islam and its role in society, maybe analogous to, say, tension between liberal and conservative Roman Catholics. Is it like that? Or... Is it something different? Uh, I think that would be a largely correct way of looking at it. So it's not that one group is totally against religion, 
uh, it's that they these groups have different ideas about what role religion should play in the public and private lives of citizens and to what extent it should be a be something that can be debated or be something that cannot be questioned mm. and those are the issues that we are trying to understand more fully as scholars who work on Turkish politics today so how would you characterize the the Islamism of Erdogan's party then I mean how do they interpret Islam um, and 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 the role that religion should play in state and society well Islamism of course is a movement that is composed of different coalitions and Erdogan has been a successful leader in terms of being able to bring these different Islamist groups into coalitions that work together uh, for him Islam is a way of refusing elitism Kemalism the intellectualism of the Turkish state establishment. So I would say it is very similar to the uh, rise of uh, maybe right-wing or nationalist populism that we see elsewhere. But in the case of Turkey, this populism is expressed through a language of Islamism. What this means is Erdogan's goal I would say has never been and is unlikely to become establishment of an Islamic Republic like the one in Iran or a very strict conservative religious theocracy like there is in Saudi Arabia. Instead, he believes Islam is this connection between himself as a leader and the true people of Turkey that have been oppressed, victimized and excluded by Kemalist elitists for all this time. So that's the kind of Islamism we have uh, with Erdogan today. But it was probably different. Not it was it was not probably it was definitely different in 1990s when for Erdogan Islamism was a democratic movement that was based on grassroots mobilization and a way to fight against state authoritarianism. So I think it's important to look at Islamism both as uh, composed of different kinds of Islamism, which is often overlooked in Middle East studies, and also to look at the ways in which Islamist ideology changes over time. But there has been an evolution in Erdogan's political program, it seems. You mentioned that he began uh, with the sort of grassroots democratic mobilization. Uh, against the traditional, more secular and somewhat authoritarian Turkish state that had been in power since the uh, Kemalist revolution. So, um, so how did he become what he's often represented uh, as today, this kind of authoritarian figure who uh, suppresses uh, free speech, who arrests journalists and and the like. What what caused that movement from sort of a grassroots democratic movement to a more, as you were saying, kind of nationalist, mm -hmm. more authoritarian uh, kind of movement? Well, uh, my compassionate interpretation 
Instead of saying Erdogan was always authoritarian or that he only pretended to be democratic in order to get in power, uh, it goes something like this. The Islamist movement, which Erdogan was a part of, was a movement that was learning how to enter politics. Islamists in Turkey, as it is the case in other parts of the Middle East, have often been excluded from electoral politics. And the AK Party was one of the few and first successful examples of electoral victory. And this was all the Islamist movement had been prepared for. They were not yet prepared to govern, nor did they know exactly how to do it. And more importantly, they did not know or think about what democracy would look like when they were once in power. So I would say that the major problem is the inability to accept and engage with criticism and opposition. It turns out that Erdogan's leadership skills, which allowed him to rise as both the leader of Turkish Islamism and a leader that is revered by many Muslims around the Muslim world, by which I mean he's strong-willed, he's stubborn, he says whatever he thinks, is not actually conducive to engaging and compromising with the opposition. So in the end, what happened is after Erdogan believed that he had enough power, he began to repress all of the other groups that he once relied on a coalition with. This include the liberals, the Gülenists, the Kurds, and various other groups, uh, because they were not prepared or willing to engage with those who criticized the party. And so was this problem of not being able to uh, accommodate uh, with different political uh, points of view, was that a factor in the 2016 coup? Uh, was, was this part of this inability to, to work with these different groups? Well, of course, even today, it's not exactly clear what happened during the uh, attempted coup of July 15. However, the attempt of Gulenists that they kind of uh, used various groups in the military to overthrow the AK party is definitely the outcome of the deterioration of relations between AK party and the Gulen. Um, and in this case, I would say that Gulenist movement was trying to retaliate because they have realized that not only their criticism and opposition would not be listened by the AK party anymore, but also the AK party had started to get rid of many Gulenist people, groups, officials, those who are in positions of authority and getting rid of them. So, could, could you clarify for our listeners uh, what this Gulenist movement is? I mean, how, and how does that sort of differ from the the uh, from Erdogan's AK Party? Well, the AK Party is an official political party. It has members. It is bound by legal rules, and more or less, there is a institutional authority that goes along with it. 
The Gulenist movement refers to this Islamist network of followers who follow cleric Fethullah Gulen, who currently lives in Philadelphia in the United States. Uh, in exile. In exile. In exile, yeah. in exile yes, correct. Um, and for a long time, the AK Party and the Gulenist movement entered into a ad hoc coalition in order to fight against secularists and the state establishment. But this coalition dissolved after 2009-2010. And it was surprising to many scholars of Turkish politics, to some extent, including myself, because of the assumption that Islamists are a homogenous group of people, that they agree on fundamentals, the idea that there would be an Islamist versus Islamist clash in Turkey would not have occurred to many scholars, let's say, if we talked to them in 2002 when the AK Party was formed. Does that answer your question? So so the Gulenists are kind of this informal network and were allied with the AK Party. Uh, what precipitated the break? Why the... Why why didn't they remain united? Uh, uh, or is this simply another part of Erdogan's inability to deal with dissent or any kind of disagreement? Or? I don't think there was any deep ideological conflict or disagreement over religious um, interpretations, for example. they These two groups are more or less uh, on the same ideas, they share the same ideas when it comes to the economy and globalization as well. However, the main disagreement, I think, has to do with two issues. One, the Turkish state, how much the Islamist political party should restructure the institutions of the Turkish state. And two, the Kurdish issue. So with the first one, the Turkish state, the Gulenist movement was uh, less willing to change the institutional structure of the regime. Whereas AK Party and Erdogan, and he has succeeded in doing so, wanted to change certain aspects of the executive, uh, the parliamentary system, the judiciary, so on and so forth. And with the second issue, the Gulenist movement wanted the Kurdish problem, as it is often called, to be solved through nonviolent means and an emphasis yeah, and, on Islam. And the Kurds are this ethnic group inhabiting primarily the western, uh, the eastern part of Turkey and and uh, uh, an ethnically distinct group from, from Turks, right? Is that correct? That is correct. And, and, and they also... Yeah. Uh, the Kurds live in the southeast of Turkey, mm-hmm. predominantly, um, and they there are also Kurds that live in Iraq, Iran, and Syria. And the Kurds in Turkey uh, have been largely oppressed by the Turkish state, even though there have been many attempts at peace and uh, reconciliation. During the 1990s, when I was growing up in Turkey, the war in the southeast was in the news every single day. Uh, And the AK Party initially uh, approached the Kurdish problem 
in a more positive way, seeking peace, and even had a Kurdish opening going on for some time. So for example, the AK Party instituted and allowed people to speak Kurdish in public places and even allowed there to be a Kurdish TV channel, which was not the case ever before. But all of this has disappeared, of course, since 2015, where a new war has broken, has broke out between the Turkish state and the Kurdish movement once again in the southeast. But back in 2010, the Gulenists were in favor of uh, less of an opening to the Kurds. Do I understand that correctly? Um, not necessarily. The difference, I think, comes down to the violent, uh, the use of violence. The Gulenists did not want to use violence against the Kurds. Uh -huh, I see. Uh, they wanted the problem to be solved slowly by civil society organizations or a more civil approach. Mm -hmm. But the AK Party uh, changed its mind, kind of, because they came to believe that the Kurdish problem needs to be solved in a violent manner in order to protect the integrity of the regime from a national security perspective. And that difference uh, is one of the ways in which they uh, separated from each other, these two Islamist movements. Okay, so I, I think I'm understanding things better now. So back to the 2016 coup then, uh, Erdogan has blamed the coup on the Gulenists. Is there any basis for that, or is that simply sort of a post hoc rationalization? I mean, who were the people who were uh, who, who participated in this coup, uh, and and how? What is the connection between the Gulenist movement? Well, Turkey has experienced a number of military coups in 1960, 70, and 80, and then another postmodern coup in 1997. This 2000. 16 coup, however, was very bad in that it was not well organized uh, compared to all these other military coups. This is the joke is that if there's something that the Turks know how to do well, it's how to do a military coup d'etat. Uh, leaving that joke aside, there were some groups in the military, mostly lower ranking officials, that tried to take over certain buildings in Ankara and Istanbul in order to have this coup going. And there were also groups of people who went to mainstream or like uh, some of the TV channels. So the idea is that the Gülenists had infiltrated the Turkish military and were using their soldiers in the Turkish military in order to wage this coup. It has not yet been proven that this was the case. Uh, but it is likely, I'm not refusing, that this was what happened. What is more interesting and important, I think, is what the AK Party did after it blamed the coup on the Gulenists. Is the AK Party used this as an opportunity to have its own kind of counter-coup and has jailed many, many academics, civil servants, teachers, lawyers since then, 
and this is when Turkey has descended to even more authoritarianism. And I understand that even some of your friends and relatives have been caught up in this repression. Can you say something about that? And what's that like to know that people you 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 know are being uh, essentially oppressed by the by the government? I mean, I am lucky that no one that is very close to me has been caught up on this. And I'm not saying this to say, you know, my relatives are, you know, better or, you know, they're on the side of the AK party. It's just luck, more or less. But I do have uh, academic colleagues, uh, the academics who signed the peace declaration asking the state to stop its war against Kurdish regions have, for example, gone through very difficult times. Uh, things like being jailed, they've lost their jobs, they are not allowed to leave the country because most of the time their passports have been taken away by the government. And it is difficult to be here and watch all of these bad things happening, especially since 2015, I'd say uh, the past four years have been very difficult. Uh, but people are resilient and they endure and there is hope, which is, I think, important for a democracy, no matter what is happening. Well, speaking of hope, just this last weekend, Erdogan had a huge set setback in Turkey that in municipal elections, opposition parties won uh, the mayor's position in both Istanbul and Ankara. And at least what I've read in the press is that this is being interpreted as something of a, of a blow uh, to er Erdogan's uh, power in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Is that how you see it? What, what's, how should we interpret these very recent uh, events in Turkey? Of course, this only happened on Sunday, and this is Tuesday. So for those of our listeners, <laughs> it's still early. Yeah, we're well, political we'll, scientists. We can figure this yeah, out. We'll tell you days. all that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing maybe that's important to note here is that uh, municipal elections are actually very important in Turkish politics because Erdogan himself rose to power by becoming the mayor of Istanbul in, I believe, 1994. So if the governing party does not have the municipal governments of the two largest cities in Turkey, uh, then that is a big change. We should also keep in mind that Istanbul has been an AK Party municipality for 25 years. So this is the first time in 25 years that another political party has been able to win the you know, municipal government, it is surprising. I think many people who follow Turkish politics were surprised because we were unfortunately getting used to the AK Party winning everything until recently. And I personally was not expecting any different kind of result. Of course, it is still not clear if these results will be accepted by the AK Party because the AK Party, as we speak, they are contesting the results. But even within the limits of this political uh, institution, I think we can say that something is shifting in Turkish politics. And the AK Party, even among its own electoral base, is facing some challenges that they will have to address 
sooner or later. And some of this is connected to the, the economy, right? The uh, Turkish economy is not doing well right now. Yes. So part of the success of the AK Party is largely attributed to the economic success of Turkey. But this uh, economic success has begun to take a downturn since 2010-2011. And right now, when I talk to my friends... Uh, I mean, I already know this, of course, but it seems that the ordinary people are really feeling the difficulties of the economy from the prices of onions and potatoes to young people really not being able to find a job or not being able to do international trade, The you know, because people don't really think Turkey is a good place to do uh, economic exchange with. And for the AK Party, losing the economy or the support of the economic sector that have been happy with the policies would be really problematic because in the added spaces the success of the AK party is because it, they have been able to combine as i've argued economic policies with islamic values Losing one of those pillars will cause a deterioration of their political power, which it has, with, as we see from these municipal elections. So this could be a crucial moment, I mean, and it could be perhaps potentially dangerous. I, I would think uh, if, we've, if we have a, a leader here who's sort of moved in an authoritarian direction, he's altered political institutions to give him more control over them, and, and now... Uh, economic and social factors are seeming to be going against him, losing elections. You think there's a real potential for even a, a harder turn towards authoritar- authoritarian rule? That is certainly possible. As I said, if the problem is not being able to accept criticism and, you know, sometimes let go of power, then it is possible that Erdogan will even do more repressive policies so that he can remain in power. However, from the last two days, it was the first time Erdogan said something like, I think he said, if we have made some mistakes, we will find a way to solve them. And this is the first time he accepted that he may actually make a mistake. So you can take it in, you know, maybe he is genuinely saying this, which does not mean he will leave his position. Or maybe he is only saying this so that he can stay in power. But the, I mean, I find the admission of guilt a welcome new development mm-hmm. or fault. So we may may begin to understand the true Erdogan in the next few years. Then uh, is he is he a, is he fundamentally a democrat uh, or is he in fact a, a, a dictator and somebody who's wanted to be a dictator from the beginning? I don't know the answer to that question, but it may be possible that he's a true populist and losing the support of the people mm-hmm. may actually mm-hmm. be difficult for him to accept. Because as long as he gets 51% of the votes, he mm-hmm. is fine because he has the support of the people. This is the rhetoric he's used. Mm-hmm. But if that support goes down to 48% or 45%, whatever, he may find it difficult to accept, which is an interesting way to think about leadership. Mm-hmm. But it may be something we comparatively have to 
deal with and understand better as populism continues to rise globally. Right. So Erdogan might reach a moment where he has to decide whether or not to simply appeal to his base, even if they're a minority of the population. Yeah, because okay. if his base is a minority, then that means he cannot continue to remain in power. But if he wants to remain in power, then he needs to change his rhetoric. So that will be a... Right. Of course, this assumes that democratic institutions are still working in Turkey, which we're not entirely certain if that is the case, uh, which is why these last municipal elections were surprising. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of other questions I have here about Turkey. Could we talk a little bit about foreign policy? Uh, uh, what what seem to be Erdogan's uh, aims in the in the uh, international arena? Uh, what what's happening there in terms of his relationship with other powers in the Middle East, like Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Iran, and then also uh, his orientation towards. Uh, the United States or Europe and uh, Russia and China? Well, as with anything else, the foreign policy orientation of Erdogan has also changed. Uh, in the beginning, by which I mean early 2000s, Erdogan campaigned on a pro-European Union, pro-American platform and had the blessing and the support of both American and Europeans uh, governments. I remember this one photo of him, you know, shaking hands uh, with Bush, I think, in 2002 or three, if I'm not wrong. Um, however, again, with his turns towards authoritarianism and populism, his foreign policy orientation has started to refuse and not bother with the European Union anymore. There's no talk of joining the European Union, for example, which was all we heard from 2002 to 2005. Um, he is very hesitant to say anything positive about the United States, um, but nothing negative either, just neutral. And uh, there's a lot of accusation, though, related to the, uh, the attempted coup and the Gulen. He is come to present himself as the leader of the Muslim world, and tries to have a balanced relationship with Saudi Arabia and Iran, who are the other two other biggest regional powers in the Middle East. I think we could say that the distance from Europe has resulted in a closeness with Russia. Um, and we see a lot more praise for Putin, not as much for China. So it may be that Turkey's political alliances at a global scale are changing at a time when global alliances are also changing. But it may also be a little early to tell which way Turkey will lean forward, lean towards, uh, but definitely not towards Europe, not these days. But, but, but Turkey has been so, somewhat allied with the United States in the over the Syrian conflict. Is that correct or is it more complicated than that? Well, the short answer is it is more complicated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because Turkey's goal is to make sure that the Syrian conflict does not result in the Kurdish minority in Turkey uh, having more power. And in order to achieve this 
the strategy shifts. Sometimes they may support rebels who are not Kurdish but are still fighting against uh, ISIS. And sometimes that support may inadvertently mean that they are supporting ISIS. Um, whereas I think the United States, at least until recently, was more supportive of Kurdish forces. So I would say under the appearance of a alliance, there's a lot going on under the surface about exactly which group, which country is supporting and is giving guns or resources. Yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm quite interested in the Kurds. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but just very quickly, uh, I know if my history is correct, that uh, with the at the onset of the Turkish Republic back in the 1920s, there was an effort towards Turkish nationalism. And it was a time when, if I remember correctly, uh, Greeks were forced out of Turkey. Uh, there was uh, Arme Armenians were forced out. That's the period of which Armenians called the Armenian Genocide. Uh, but here we have the Kurds who seem to, to have survived as an ethnic group in this atmosphere. Is there something special about the Kurds that have allowed them to uh, persist in the face of Turkish nationalism? Um, I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I think there was nowhere to send them oh. in the beginning. Um, so like Greeks could be sent to Greece and Armenians could be sent to Armenia, etc., or killed, um, unfortunately. For the Kurds, the assumption was that Kurdishness was largely a problem of backwardness, and these were just villager Turks. So uh -huh, it was okay. this modernist assumption of the Turkish Republic. Uh, that so they would kind of go away eventually. They would just grow out of it. Right, right. Uh, but it is also important to note that Mustafa Kemal also had a coalition with the Kurds, but then later when he was not willing to give them their political and economic demands, there were uh, violent confrontations that started in 1929-1930, which still continue to this day. Um, if I think we should go a little bit back, the problem for, you know, for the Kurds is that the creation of these four countries, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, which were largely done by European colonial powers, which divided Kurdish land arbitrarily without considering them a legitimate national group that also deserved their own nation state. And now, a hundred years later, we're still dealing with the results of this, uh, I don't know, problematic decision-making process by European colonialism, to put it in a mild manner. <laughs> okay, another, another after effect of European colonialism, uh, like, like, like many more. So uh, just to conclude, uh, looking into your crystal ball, uh, where's Turkey going, do you think? Um, hopefully to better days. Um, I, I This is hard to say. I think I already had an answer to this question before the Sunday elections, but now I fear that, you know, my uh, negative uh, thoughts may actually not be true. But this is generally how I see the solution to the problem of Turkish authoritarianism or Turkey's 
reversal back to authoritarianism will come from Turkey, from the Turkish political groups. And it will come as a result of learning of the opposition. If the opposition learns how to rise up against the dominant AK Party, create coalitions, that will be one way uh, through which we can have, you know, a way forward and more democratization. Another option is that it will come from within the Islamist movement. The Islamist movement uh, needs to learn how to disagree with their leader, even if they agree on the Islamic principles of his leadership. And that is a process of learning how to act in a democracy and govern, but also to disagree and criticize and form an opposition. I am hopeful, though, that um, this both of these options are possible. Uh, uh, either there will be a political movement that comes from the Islamists, or there will be political coalitions from the opposition. But the destiny of Turkey at this point, to put it, will depend on which one of those paths will develop. Okay, ending on a note of hope. That's very good. Thanks so much, Gazim, for a very enlightening conversation. I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did too. And thanks also to the Beyond the News Feeds technical support team, Chris Judge of Providence College's Marketing and Communications Office, and our new student production assistant, who's having her debut today, uh, recording us, uh, Reagan Wind of Providence College's Class of 2020. Thanks also to Joe Carr, Vice President for Marketing and Communications, for his support. And many thanks to our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to this podcast wherever they get their podcast. Thanks so much.